take a sample use case that you would use, like writing a blog article or social media shares or developing a brief or something, and then like take your normal prompt and then start enriching that prompt using these recommendations and start to see for yourself how it evolves. And you'll probably start to see a lot better value outputs from the machine. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 50 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput. How's it going, Mike? Good. How are you? Good. We are both in town <laughs> this week. Not for long, but we are, yeah, right. we are both in Cleveland this week recording this thing live. It is Monday morning, June 5th at about 10.51 a.m. Eastern time. Now, it's important that I note this because, as we'll mention later on, the Apple Developer Conference is today at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So you will be listening to this after the Apple event has happened. And we may then have brand new AR VR glasses from Apple um, to sort of redefine that segment. But uh, we're recording this before that. So if you're here to hear our take on Apple's new <laughs> AR glasses, it has not happened yet as we are recording. So uh, we'll talk a little, bit more about, a little bit more about that later. But um, uh, this episode is brought to us by the Marketing AI Conference. If you're a regular listener, you've heard us talk about this event. It is coming back to Cleveland July 26th to the 28th. This is our fourth year. Um, we're trending towards six to 700 attendees, it's looking like. Um, I'll be there, obviously. Mike will be there. And we've got about know, 30 to 40 speakers, incredible lineup. So definitely check that out if you're looking to be back in person for events and you want to be kind of at the, the center of what's going on in this space, hear all about the latest technologies and uh, the best use cases and how to kind of pilot and scale this in your organization. We would love to have you join us at the convention center in Cleveland, right across from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in beautiful Lake Erie. The address is www.maicon.ai. That's maicon.ai. We hope to see you there. All right, Mike. Uh, again, if you're new to the podcast, we pick three main topics each week. We hit some rapid fires. And today we had a last minute change to jump into the top spot because it's super practical and helpful uh, to us and hopefully to you. So, Mike, take it away. All right, Paul. So, yeah, as you mentioned, we just saw OpenAI drop a really interesting resource. It's called GPT Best Practices. And we first saw this because Logan Kilpatrick at OpenAI tweeted about it this morning. And this is an extensive resource from OpenAI that shares strategies and tactics for getting better results from GPTs. So, you know, the technology underlying things like ChatGPT and GPT-4. These are best practices that are specifically for GPT-4 in the sense that all of them will only work with GPT-4, though I believe some of them would work in uh, other models like GPT-3.5. I've now, seen similar recommendations on this with like, even like Bard and Claude too. So I do mm -hmm. think that while what we're going to cover is specific to GPT-4 and from OpenAI, 
based on our, you know, kind of look at this, it, it's a lot of tips that I think will be applied to any large language model you're working with, whatever your preferred model is, even if you're using an application like a Jasper writer, mm. um, these seem like really good tactical recommendations. And so there are basically six broad categories they cover, and I'm going to run through those real quick and we'll dive into the ones we find most fascinating. And under each one, this is why the guide is well worth a read. They not only include these larger strategies for getting better results, but for each one, they include tactics that you can also use to begin executing on their strategy. So the six strategies are as follows. First is write clear instructions. So they give a number of tactics to do this, things like providing examples, asking the model to adopt a persona, et cetera. Number two is provide reference text. So you're basically instructing the model to answer using some type of reference, an article, um, a citation, et cetera. Third is split complex tasks into simpler subtasks. Four is give GPTs time to think. Five is use external tools to augment your prompting. And six is to test changes systematically. So. Paul, there's a lot to run through here, but what reading through this, I mean, how are you seeing marketers and business people getting value out of the instructions? Yeah, I just like that they're taking the step to just put this all out there because so far for marketers, business uh, professionals to use these tools, we've talked about the importance of prompting and your ability to give guidance to the machine of what it is you're looking for. But there's been very few like authoritative takes on exactly how to do this. There's lots of Twitter threads and lots of experimentation. But even for us, like I've just been trying to follow and kind of compile our own how to's and what a good prompt looks like. So I don't know, maybe just like I'll, I'll expand on a couple of uh, or on the six you went through, because I think it's helpful for the context they have. And again, we'll put the link in in the show notes. So you can go check this out for yourself. But on the right, the right clear instructions, they say, you know, if their outputs are too long, ask for brief replies. So that's one thing people always seem to forget is like, if you don't get value on the first one, you can ask more, you can give it more detail. And they're like, no, I'm, lo I'm looking for this. And so what they're saying here is like, really be clear with that. If their outputs are too simple, ask it to do an expert level. So if you get something and it's, it's too simple, say, can you, can you write this at an expert level or vice versa? If they come back and it's too technical, say, can you write that? Can you simplify this for me? Um, if you dislike the format, demonstrate a format you'd like to see. So again, it gives you paragraphs Say no, no, no. Can you do it like this and show it bullet points? So just like this whole idea, you know, we've talked about almost like briefing an intern, like all the yeah. depth of detail of exactly what you need. Um, the reference text, we've talked about the importance of that before, but it says that they can confidently invent fake answers, we've, you know, hallucinations, what we've heard of the term, um, especially when asked about esoteric topics and for citations and URLs in the same way that a sheet of notes can help a student do better, providing reference text GPTs can be helpful getting fewer fabrications. Um, the splitting complex tasks and the simpler tasks, I've seen a lot of this, actually, I, I believe a few open AI people have shared this on Twitter in, in recent weeks. But this whole idea of like, walk it through tasks, like walk through step by step, so rather than one big thing, give it that, but then tell it to, to show its work or to do it in steps. And what it does is it, it enables it to make kind of less mistakes because it actually starts to like chunk these things off and do it in these logical, um, where there's logical breakpoints and it reduces the air rates um, in what you get back. So that's a really cool one. 
the giving it time to think is not like a, um, it's a little abstract. They have think in quotation marks, mm-hmm. but it says if asked to multiply 17 by 28, you might not know it instantly, but can still work it out with time. Similar GPTs make more reasoning errors when trying to answer right away rather than taking time to work out the answer. So ask for chain of reasoning before an answer can help GPTs reason their way toward correct answers. So that's one that, again, is a little bit more abstract like what is chain of reasoning. That's where the the fact that they include these tactics in there in this is really helpful to you. So again, take your time, go through this resource, click through and see exactly what they're recommending there. Um, Use external tools. So this is basically saying compensate by feeding them the outputs from other tools. For example, a text retrieval system, um, a code execution engine can help GPTs. I think are they maybe referring to like plugins here um, yeah, where it's actually so. pulling in other resources, which interesting. This is a total side note. I saw a tweet. I think I retweeted it last night that Sam Altman was quoted as saying like plugins don't have product market fit right now. So again, <laughs> If you remember, Sam Altman was the head of Y Combinator. Product market fit was like his religion for startups. And so for him to say he's not seeing product market fit at the moment, I think what's happening is they put all these plugins into chat GPT, but they're not seeing massive adoption rates or value creation yet. And it almost seems like they're kind of wondering, is the plugin model really going to work or is it mm-hmm. going to be, you know, is it going to be the ecosystem we thought it could be? Um, so using externals, then test changes systematically. So improving performance is easier if you can measure it. In some cases, a modification to a prompt will achieve better performance, um, but lead to worse overall performance on a more representative set of samples. Therefore, be sure to, that a change is net positive performance. It may be necessary to define a comprehensive test suite, an eval, as they talk about um, these evals. Um, and then it kind of gets into all the tactical stuff. So. And there, there was a related resource that we'll put in the link that had that's terms like around what are tokens, what are embeddings, what are prompts. So as again, large language models are going to be a critical part of every marketer's job, every business. Um, so I think taking these steps to really start learning some of this stuff uh, and be more confident in your understanding of it is a really helpful thing. And it's guides like these that can really help you start applying this stuff and start experimenting and don't. You know, again, don't just read it and move on, test it as you're reading it, like go in and take, take a, take a sample use case that you would use, like writing a blog article or social media shares or developing a brief or something. And then like take your normal prompt and then start enriching that prompt using these recommendations and start to see for yourself how it evolves. And you'll probably start to see a lot better value outputs from the machine. Yeah, I've noticed, I think what you said at the beginning is really worth reiterating. If you have historically been unable to get good results from these tools for basic marketing and business tasks, you really do need to give this a revisit and experiment because oftentimes I've found the best outputs often come from more of what you might call a conversation with ChatGPT or what have you versus just a single command working perfectly the first time. Yeah, one of the ones I think you've used this, Mike, but I've seen this recommended too is ask the ask GPT what uh, what do you need to know from me to yeah. do this? Yeah, you know what questions should should I be answering for you? So yes, like having a conversation and asking it what it needs, um, it it really is worth the time if you're going to be using these tools as part of your daily workflow to become very proficient at, at prompting and the, kind of the diff, different technical ways to do it. Uh, and, and this is, you know, a good starting point, hopefully, you know, can get you further along than you are if you haven't been doing these things yet. Well, cool. all right. Well, next up, we have 
an interesting resource that aims to answer a question, could generative AI transform healthcare for the better? And at least according to one expert, the answer is yes. So we saw recently a new essay commissioned by Microsoft, actually, and written by Dr. Robert Wachter, who is the professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And in the essay, Wachter says he's optimistic that generative AI systems like GPT-4 have the potential to reshape how healthcare works. Now, he actually put GPT-4 through its paces in a variety of medical or healthcare-related scenarios. And he even says, quote, there is no question that GPT-4 represents a breathtaking advance in medical AI. I fed it a series of very tough clinical scenarios, the kinds of twisty-turny cases that challenge our very best clinicians, and I found its overall clinical reasoning abilities akin to those of a very good medical resident, well beyond novice, but not quite expert. So Wachter actually argues that wider deployment of AI in healthcare could lead to a number of different benefits, you know, from patients being able to manage some of their own health to reducing inefficiencies and expanding what each physician can do in a given day. And overall, this could lead to much better patient outcomes and reduce healthcare costs. Now, what's really interesting is Wachter also cautions that the barriers to achieving this cannot be minimized. And those include some significant barriers in the healthcare industry. One of them is he worries about the resistance to change from entrenched interests within the healthcare system. They will, he says, quote, push back mightily against substantive changes in the flow of dollars and work. He also cites worries around privacy and data concerns, you know, that could slow down AI innovation in healthcare as they try to navigate those issues. And also he worries that the training of healthcare professionals and administrators will need to seriously evolve as we learn to work with and oversee AI systems. And it has to do so in a way that minimizes automation complacency and over-reliance on technology in this very critical kind of human function. Now, Paul, you had shared a post about this on LinkedIn. What did you find most interesting? What caught your attention about this article in particular? Yeah, I mean, so we... I have a background in healthcare. When I ran my agency, we we did a lot of work in the healthcare space. Uh, we have a lot of healthcare companies that are, you know, subscribers to the Institute. It's a topic we we pay pretty close attention to. So one, I was interested just from a healthcare perspective. Um, but two, the thing that really jumped out at me was this was a, a domain expert, a doctor who, you know, sees firsthand the benefits. But what I had said on LinkedIn, it was a, it was a wonderfully balanced article um, based on both the opportunities and the obstacles of generative AI and healthcare. But the thing that I really took away from it is this experience, this perspective I saw as being widely applicable to many industries that deal with sensitive data, high costs, both human and financial for AI errors. So if it, the AI goes wrong, the impact is significant. Um, and concerns around liability of the AI outputs and the need for humans to own the, the outputs um, because someone has to take ownership of what is created and, and recommended. So that was the, the main thing to me is I just thought it was such a well-written article that took a very balanced approach. Again, we've heard a lot of this existential threat to humanity, like it's going to be the downfall of humanity and all these concerns around the ethics and the safety. 
And a lot of times what happens is you have articles that take an extreme on either side or, or leader thought leaders that take an extreme on either side. And what we try and do very hard with this show is to find the middle ground. Like what is the balance here? Understand the perspective of both sides, but say, okay, here's the reality of where we are. And I felt like this article did that. Like he did a great job of saying, listen, we're not, we're not ignoring the fact that there are risks here. There are threats that can, we, we have to accept there's potential negative outcomes, but the potential positive outcomes are so significant that we have to work to get this right. But then as you called out, the one thing that jumped out to me in terms of like many industries are going to deal with is, um, he said, most of the stakeholders in the current healthcare system benefit from the status quo. Mm. That is so true. I mean, and we've talked about that, the law of on even AI distribution previously. And that one of the, the ideas is that you're going to have to accept the technology to benefit from it. There are going to be a lot of industries and a lot of companies and a lot of executives who don't want to accept the benefits because it changes things so dramatically. So we've talked about any professional service firm, for example, that's still charging billable hours. Mm. That's going to be a really hard financial model moving forward. If you're in knowledge work and you're charging by the minute or by the hour for what you do, it is not going to take you as long. So you're either going to make less money or you have to find a way to move to a value-based model. Mm. And that's very hard for like lawyers, marketing agencies come to mind. Um, so I do think that there's just a lot of status quo. There's going to be a lot of resistance, especially in big organizations to change because a lot of people's careers and their success have been built on doing things a certain way and they have no interest in doing it the other way. Um, another one comes to mind, like writers. We talk about writers all the time. We're writers by trade. Right. Um, but a couple episodes ago, we talked about like the Hollywood writer strike. And this is the basic premise. Like they don't even want to acknowledge, like they don't want to use the AI. They just... They want to do what they do. And we're not saying it should in any way replace what they're doing, but we just have, there are so many people who have this resistance to even understand the tech to, mm. to figure out, okay, how can it actually make us better at what we do? They just see it as a threat to replacing them and they don't want to hear about it. I've, I've experienced this at college universities with professors and administrators who don't want to hear about it. Um, we hear, we've talked with writers, designers, artists, like it, and that's our position is like, I, again, I think this article just does a really good job of accepting that there are fears and uncertainties um, and potential negative outcomes. But if it can be done right, it can be dramatically transformative in a very positive way to an industry. And so this one is specifically for healthcare, but you can read this and apply the same kind of thinking to a lot of other industries. And so if you're in an industry or in a company where you're feeling this resistance, mm. this is probably a really good article to read just to give you a little bit of perspective. So another factor that is not being talked about enough could dramatically affect AI adoption, and that's how much it costs customers to access the latest and greatest AI capabilities. Uh, there was just a new report from the publication The Information, and they said, quote, more than 600 of Microsoft's largest customers, including Bank of America, Walmart, Ford, and Accenture, have been testing the AI features in its Microsoft Office 365 productivity apps. And at least 100 of the customers are paying a flat fee of $100,000 for up to 1,000 users in one year, according to a person with direct knowledge of this pilot program. 
So this report goes on to say that Microsoft is basically trying to figure out how to price the AI features it is incorporating into its existing products. So in one possibility, Microsoft might charge an add-on fee to access the features. In the other, it would add AI features automatically to Microsoft Office and increase the price of subscriptions per seat. So essentially what we're seeing here is that as firms incorporate artificial intelligence, that is an expensive capability to run constantly as part of existing platforms and systems. So we could see a significant price rise in AI tools. And actually, other firms are paying pretty close attention to what Microsoft is doing. So there were two other companies, Box, which is a cloud company, and Coda, a productivity app, that told the information they have considered raising their prices to cover the costs of running new AI capabilities. So, Paul, I wanted to kick off by asking you, how do you anticipate that proposed pricing for AI features is going to impact the business leaders trying to use these tools? I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation. I don't, I don't, I mean, a lot of these SaaS companies can draw on past pricing model experiences. Like, I, I mean, I can speak firsthand for being HubSpot's first partner back in 2007. Um, we went through dozens of iterations of their pricing model. So this mm -hmm. is like a, a, a wonderful, um, highly successful SaaS company that was always iterating and probably still is iterating. And some of them were fundamental shifts in terms of like charging by contacts, charging by usage, like complete changes in the paradigm of how it was done. Mm. And so this is very common in software companies overall to explore and iterate on the model. The challenge here is going to be we've never faced a productivity gain like could be uh, realized through these tools. And so then the question becomes, you know, if you, if you break down this math, 100,000 for 1,000 users, it's only $100 per user per year. Right. Like that it almost doesn't, it seems almost stupid cheap. So I assume this is like a, a beta model. So it sounds expensive on the whole. It's like $100,000, focus on that number. But when you break out, if that's not per month, that's just saying for one year, that's $100 per year. Right. Like I would, I would pay that in a second because like, I mean, you gain an hour of productivity in the year and you've paid for that person's time basically. So I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation and it's going to be highly competitive because if like, let, okay, let's just play this out. So let's say Microsoft Office 365 comes out, it's available and it's good. Like it actually works. And let's say I'm paying for a few other generative AI tools that I have 19 bucks a month, $59 a month, $99 a month. Mm. Now, maybe those applications have some enterprise capabilities or features that Microsoft often doesn't or some like cool templates that we're used to using or we have our preset prompts in there. Like there's some sticky factor to these other tools. But if Microsoft and Google show up mm. and all of a sudden for $9 a month per user, I can get all of these capabilities baked into Google or into Microsoft. I start asking myself, what do I need these other application companies for? Mm -hmm. So one, the big guys can have, can create pricing pressure on the market by coming and saying, Hey, listen, we'll just break even for the first year or two. And we'll just get rid of all these competitors. And now everybody's just going to use our tools. Um, they could go upstream and they could offer enterprise capabilities that these other players can't. So, I, I mean, I think it's just going to be, it's going to take time to play out. I, I do. I'm unsure how players like Box, who has some awesome AI from what I've seen demoed so far, mm -hmm. um, how some of these companies 
compete. Like it's, it, it, it is, it is easy to see a scenario where the, the big players get bigger and, mm. and are the real winners here. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it was, it's the first time I've seen any real pricing data on this because I do think a lot of these SaaS companies are just pushing the AI capabilities out just to get people using them. Yeah. And it's like a, almost a freemium to date, but you know, it's not going to stay that way because the cost for them to enable these features is significant at the moment. So, you know, when they're pulling the APIs from OpenAI or however they're building it, they're not getting that stuff for free. Yeah. So they're going to have to pass the costs on. And then the question becomes, to, to what degree and can you compete with the bigger players? Um, and then the other variable is the cost is going to actually plummet for them to use these tools. Like the mm -hmm. cost of the access from a, OpenAI, they've shown they'll, they'll reduce the cost for the people to use the API over time. Um, so I don't know, there's just, there's a lot of pricing factors here, but as you're building your AI roadmap for your company, you're trying to figure out which tools and which providers the pricing factor is unknown at the moment, but is going to play a big part in it. Um, I, I don't expect $100 per user per year to be what this actually costs. I, I would imagine it's going to go way higher than that, but you should be able to build a business case for it by saying, okay, but if we have these tools, we're going to save 20% on administrative tasks. We spend a half a million dollars a year on administrative tasks across three people. Um, we can save X dollars. So yeah, we'll pay 300 bucks a month per person because we're saving 3000 a month per person. Like it's going to, you're going to be able to build these kind of business cases to justify these costs. But again, I don't, I don't know too many organizations that are doing that yet. They're that far along. So if I'm a small business, is there anything specific I need to be thinking about here? You know, I mean, in an ideal world, you're paying and testing all these tools, but small businesses often can have tight budgets and, you know, lack of time and bandwidth to do that. Yeah, I think they're, the tools are going to be affordable to you. So for one, I don't think you're going to get priced out of this. I, you know, I do believe that whether it's the application companies that are building on top of the APIs or it's Microsoft and Google themselves, they have shown through their pricing strategies previously that they'll, they will make products for the small business. Now you may not have all the features that the enterprise players get. That would be the standard thing. You stack features for the higher grade ones. Um, but the tools are going to be affordable. You do have to be careful with like tech creep though. Like I, again, I've, I've run small businesses. My agency was 18 employees, our institutes five employees, and it's real easy to throw 50 bucks a month at this tool and 99 bucks a month at that tool and nine bucks a month here and 29 bucks there. And all of a sudden, as a small business, you have a $500, $1,000 a month tech bill mm. across 10 different AI tools, eight of which you're barely even using. So that's the thing you have to be careful of as a small business leader or marketer is that you don't just start stacking a bunch of AI tools that you don't really use. You know, you really want to have, stay disciplined with your pilot programs, test tools for 90 days fully use the features and capabilities, make sure you're trained on how to actually do them. Like if you're using AI, AI tools, make sure you have proper, proper training on how to prompt them. Like we talked about in the first topic. Mm -hmm. So make sure you're doing it right. And then at the end of 90 days, make a decision whether to keep it or get rid of it. I mean, you, you know, Mike, we, how many tools do we have sitting around that we just right. paid a license for every month that we don't even use? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very easy for it to get out of control very quick. Um, if you're a leader trying to effectively assess kind of if the benefits outweigh the costs? Is it really just as simple as looking at those use cases, like you mentioned, and saying putting a dollar value on them? 
I mean, I think it starts there, but I do believe you have to look at the people on your team, who's using the tools, how does it affect their workflows and productivity? And, and then what's the, the value exchange there? I mean, that's kind of how we always teach all this stuff is AI is just smarter technology. You have to look at it the way you've always purchased marketing technology. You have to find what the value is to it. And it could be productivity gains. It could be increased revenue. It could be, it saves your cost because you can consolidate from three other tools. Like, but go in knowing what is the goal for this technology and then measure against that. And, you know, that's kind of the way you have to decide whether or not they're viable for you moving forward. Gotcha. So let's dive into a couple rapid fire topics. And the first one is uh, a little heavy, but um, <laughs> top AI re leaders just released this kind of explosive statement about what they call, quote, risk of extinction that AI poses to humanity. And this statement was released through the Center for AI Safety. And the statement is literally just a single sentence. And I'll talk about that in a second. The single sentence is, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. This statement was signed by top people in AI like Jeff Hinton, formerly of Google, Demis Hassabis, as well as OpenAI's Sam Altman, Stability AI CEO Imad Mustak, and even Bill Gates. And the statement's designed to be short. So the Center for AI Safety basically said, as we're kind of increasingly discussing important and urgent risks from AI, it can sometimes be difficult to voice concerns about some of advanced AI's most severe risks. So they intentionally created a succinct statement to essentially get past that obstacle and start a conversation. So Paul, this was a pretty controversial statement. Some people are coming out obviously very, very for it and saying we need to pay serious attention to existential risk here. Others thought it was wildly overblown and a little ridiculous. What did you think when you saw this? I was confused, honestly, at first. I, I, when I read the statement, the 22 words, I kept scrolling down saying, okay, so where's the rest of this? So I, I thought it was just, a, it was kind of bizarre. And so I had to dig into it a little bit and go see what different people are saying. There's certainly a lot of entrepreneurs and AI researchers that sign this that I have huge respect for and that we follow, like Demis Asabas, for example, like that's kind of, my, he's sort of my North Star in a lot of this, this area. So if he's signing, it's like, okay, there's something to this. This is first, I'd make sure it was legit that these people actually were signing this, but then they one by one started tweeting that they did sign it and here's why. Um, the counterpoint to this that you're going to hear from the people who don't buy into this is pandemics and nuclear war very clear existential risk. We understand how we go from A, it exists, to B, we don't. <laughs> like, that's obvious. No one in the AI world that claims it's an ex existential risk seems to be very good at explaining how or like what exactly it is about it that's existential risk on par with pandemics and nuclear wars. And, or, or they'll say, okay, it could be, but it's not. And it might be years or it might be never that it is. And are we just creating unnecessary conversation around this and distracting from the real focus? So that's what we've said on the show before is like, fine, great. I, I'm happy that people are researching this and thinking about it and talking about it. But I'm more happy to know that people are focused on the near-term issues that are, that are very real and tangible and we should be solving for, like workplace and economic development and workforce disruption and 
um, bias and algorithms and things like that. Like that's the stuff that's here now and we should be focused on it. Education system disruption. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's still kind of weird to me. Um, the, the whole premise of this, uh, legit people signed it. I said on the LinkedIn post, like the most interesting part to me is probably that a bunch of these major AI research companies and labs seem to be unified in these concerns, mm. uh, many of them, and appear willing to collaborate on solutions. And then I said it, it could be either they know government regulation is coming and they're trying to sort of band together to just solve this themselves. But I don't, that doesn't really jive. Like I, I, don't, I don't believe necessarily that's the reason. Right. Um, and then the other I said is it could just be that they really do think this is a, a very near-term threat to society and they got to figure this out fast and they need support. Hmm. And there's probably other options of why they're doing it, but I don't know. I mean, like we've talked about on the shore, we, we surface this, this stuff just so you're aware of it. It's not hit the panic button time, in my opinion, but it is pay attention. There's lots of very intelligent, um, important people in the AI world who are a part of this. And so it's noteworthy for, you know, better or for worse at the moment. It's worth at least paying attention to and, and seeing what comes of it. So one other topic people may be hearing about this week is this name Falcon 40B that is making the rounds. And what this is, is an AI open source model. And there's a couple of really interesting things about this. This is what we would call a foundational large language model. And it's got 40 billion parameters and it's trained on 1 trillion tokens. Now, what this means, this is open source for research and commercial use. So anyone can build on top of this model. Anyone can fine tune it to whatever purposes that they would like it to do. Now, what's also interesting here is this model was released essentially by a government. So Abu Dhabi released Falcon 40B as part of the government's Advanced Technology Research Council and as part of the Technology Innovation Institute, a research center within that council. So we literally have a government body releasing a major open source language model that anyone can use. So Paul, this is a pretty significant development, it sounded like. Yeah, again, this is, you know, it gets more technical. And I know, you know, some of our audience maybe isn't down with all the technical stuff and we're not going to get into like explaining the, the parameters and the the weights and the tokens and all that. Like it's, I think the key takeaway here is every week, it seems there is news around innovation within the large language model space, which is the underlying architecture that's powering all the writing capabilities that we're all having as well as image generation, you know, video generation, like all this generative AI stuff. But the language model is the core here and open source versus closed is the conversation we've had. So we have our closed like open AI and anthropic um, cohere. And then you have your open models like Llama, well, sort of open when they release the weights, um, stability, LM, um, Falcon. And so these are things anybody can build on and they can, in the case of Falcon, get access to all the backgrounds of how it works and they can adjust it themselves. And so I think it's just noteworthy that a lot of people in the AI space, this is what they were talking about last week. And it just indicates continued innovation of large language models, which also means continued complexity for marketers and business leaders who are trying to figure out what bet to make in the language model space. What do you build on top of if you're building a marketing sales service engine that's going to be powered by these language models? 
it's be, it's continuing to be um, a noisy space and there's very little guidance on how to actually pick the right language models for your company. And so it's important just to surface this for you so you're aware that things are continuing to move and there's innovations that we're still trying to comprehend every week. So like you alluded to at the beginning, Paul, in a couple hours here, we're going to kick off Apple's annual Worldwide Developers Conference. Um, it goes June 5th through the 9th. And this is huge because Apple is expected to be launching a rumored AR VR headset. So um, <clears throat> augmented reality and virtual reality. And this is big for a number of reasons. Obviously, VR headsets exist already, but the industry has really struggled to kind of take off because the headsets and the use cases are kind of unwieldy and pretty limited. So the thinking is, I think one VR developer called it in an interview with The Verge, the best thing that could ever happen to the industry is someone like Apple getting into the mix and creating hardware around VR. But also AR is exceptionally interesting as well, given that you could have some type of headset or glasses that overlay your physical world. And obviously AI is a critical component of creating these AR and VR experiences. So Paul, I know you're a huge Apple fan. So is this exciting? I am a huge Apple fanboy. I do pretty much buy anything they release. I'm not sure about this one. I'm not an AR VR guy. Um, I just like three weeks ago got an Oculus 2, I think it is. It was gifted to me. So I, for the first time in my life, put on a headset like three weeks ago. Um, I, I don't know. I've heard mixed reactions. I've heard from some people who have tested this and heard being like seen on Twitter. Uh, that it is it is insane. It's so good. The technology is so advanced, like the most beautiful screen they'd ever seen. Um, I I think it's going to be fascinating from a technological standpoint. I've heard that the price point is going to be close to three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Again, this is all just hearsay and 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 stuff you're seeing online, meaning it's it's going to be a really high price point. So I don't think this is meant to be like the iPhone moment where we're all going to be walking around in AR VR glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess we'll find out. We'll see what they have. Uh, yeah, I know they've been working on this for a long time. It's been kind of hush-hush. They haven't talked much about it. Um, so we'll find out in a couple hours. And again, by the time you're listening to this, go online and, and check it out for yourself if you haven't seen it. Uh, it. It should be really interesting. I do think that while it is competition for Meta, Meta needs Apple probably to legitimize this space and to bring it mainstream. And uh, we'll see what happens. I'm intrigued, though. I mean, I, if it's not $3,000, I might go grab one just to, <laughs> right. to experiment with it. That's a business expense, right? We, gotta, we have to uh, test yeah. this. You and I need to do our podcast in augmented virtual reality. We got to go get a couple of headsets to That's try it. Idea. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So, Paul, as always, thanks for the insights and for taking the time to walk us through the developments in AI. I'll kind of let you wrap us up here. I know we have a couple of like quick announcements. Yeah, so we have, so you're listening to this, like this comes out June 6th. The next two episodes of the podcast are going to divert from our standard weekly format because Mike and I are both traveling and it's become impossible to pull these off. Um, So we'll both be out of the country a little bit here and there and doing some speaking tours. So we are going to episode 51, which will come out on June 13th. We are going to actually curate a list of the top questions we get in our intro to AI class. So if you haven't taken the intro to AI class, we have an intro to AI for marketers class that I teach every few weeks. We've been doing this since November of 2021. It is free. It's done through Zoom. 
We have done 25 of them. We've done seven this year, I think. And we get, um, on average, let's see, we've been averaging probably around four to 500 attendees each time. Um, so you can imagine we get a lot of questions. We've had over 11,000 people register for this series. So we have literally hundreds of questions and we're curating them with the help of AI and we're actually categorizing them and then picking probably 15, 20, 25. We'll see how many we get through, but we're basically going to take the, take the top questions that we get in this part of this intro to AI class. And Kathy McPhillips, who moderates that for me, the intro to AI class for me, our chief growth officer, she's going to join me to moderate a Q&A based on those FAQs from the intro to AI class for episode 51. So super tactical all focused on things that people are asking us all the time. So hopefully you'll get a ton of value and knowledge out of that one. And then episode 52, we decided it would be fun to do sort of a year in review of what are the biggest moments in AI up till this point. So it'll be right toward the end of June. And we'll dare what, June 20th, I think. Um, so that one will be focused on <clears throat> the top 10 or 15 things that have occurred this year. So it'll be a great way to catch up on all the news from the year. And if you haven't been listening to the podcast all along, a chance to sort of hear some of the big moments throughout the the year. And then Mike and I will be back for what I think it's the, the June 27th or something yep. like that. Yeah. Um, with our regular weekly format, hopefully things don't go crazy for the next two weeks and we have to have like a <laughs> mega episode to catch up on all the news, but we will catch you up on anything major that happens in the next couple of weeks while we're gone. Um, so stay tuned for that. So again, episode 51 is FAQ based on the intro to AI for marketers class. And that episode 52 is going to be a mid-year in review of the top moments and news in AI so far. So as always, thanks for listening. Uh, and we love hearing from the listeners. So don't hesitate to reach out and connect with Mike and I on LinkedIn. And uh, we'll look forward to being back with you again on June 27th. And Kathy and I will be with you for the next couple of weeks with the special editions. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening to The Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.